0: And good morning, everyone. Always helps if you put the pot up. Welcome to The Other Side of Midnight, that really extraordinary time, certainly here in the Land of Enchantment tonight, where between dusk and dawn, almost anything can happen, certainly on this show, and tonight it is going to happen. Let me give you a little background. Um, I'm a big fan of the idea of the 12 Days of Christmas. Robin and I used to have this one major kind of temp around the end of the year on Christmas because she was raised to celebrate, you know, that peak, the morning, Christmas morning. And if you're not a morning person, celebrating Christmas on Christmas morning is a little, you know, jarring. Now, in my family, uh, going back through my parents and my grandparents, we would all get together and we would do it what I used to think of as the civilized way we would uh, all get together on Christmas day at a reasonable hour, you know, like noonish, And then we'd all go to one of the houses, you know, it was usually my grandparents' house because they had a bigger house than we did when we were growing up. And we would have, you know, sit around, and we would talk and we have coffee and then we'd have dinner. And Christmas came after dinner in a, before a fire and with, you know, I mean, it took hours and hours. and You know, it was, it was leisurely, it was civilized, it was something that all day you could look forward to. And then following Christmas Day, there would be surprises. So I really got into the idea of the 12 days of Christmas long before I realized that the 12 days is symbolic of all kinds of interesting stuff, which undergirds Christianity and Western Judeo-Christian traditions, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, in those early, early years, I wasn't thinking in terms of symbology and metaphors and things like that. Now, the one thing about Christmas that really grabbed me as I was getting into my professional life, particularly at the museum, was the story of the Christmas star. And it, it turned out that that was the first radio program on a little station called WDEW, the Dew Line, named after that famous uh, Cold War um, vanguard of radars struck across Canada that was built by construction workers that actually stayed um, in our place uh, in our bed and breakfast when my when we were growing up and my parents were running a restaurant and a little, you know, kind of inn and all that. And we had some of the construction workers come in because part of it had to be linked to Camp David, which was just up the street, you know, the presidential retreat. So we had a kind of an inside look, and I just wish I'd been paying more attention because if I knew then what I know now, oh, the questions like anyway. So my first foray into radio when I was at the museum in, in New England, in Massachusetts, was the story of the Christmas star. And there were, you know, several hypotheses looking at mainstream astrophysics for what this celebrated event could have been coming down through 2,000 years of uh, history. And we would go through in the planetarium, you know, as part of getting ready for, you know, the Christmas season, the options, you know, the planetary conjunctions, the potential nova, you know, a comet. Um, the astrological meaning of the uh, conjunctions of bright planets at certain constellations like Pisces for the Jewish people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, folks, tonight I have news for you, which is an extraordinary, um, I won't really say coincidence, but certainly a synchronicity with what we're going to be talking about this evening In the 12 days of Christmas, in our post-Christmas special tonight with David, David Collis, because I'm going to present to you for the next couple, three minutes, going to Radio with Pictures for data, for evidence, the possibility that if not this year, then in the next few years, maybe next year, maybe the year after, could in fact be, you know, tomorrow night. Something wondrous, as Arthur Clarke said in uh, 2010, something wondrous could be about to happen. Because if you go to The Other Side of Midnight, that's our homepage, theothersideofmidnight.com. Go there, click on that. And at the very top, you will see the 12 Days of Christmas special, Interviewing Jesus with David Collis for December 28th. Click on that. That will take you to the show page. Scroll down a bit, or you can do this. You can actually just look for, uh, under the presidential briefing banner, it says FastLinks, David Collis show page, FastLinks, Richard's items. Click on Richard's items. That takes you to my items. One, two, and three. They're all about an object which could conceivably, as early as tomorrow night. I mean, I'm not kidding about this, as you're going to hear. Could become a real-time Bona fide Christmas star. So let me give you a little backstory. Click on item number one. As Betelgeuse—that's the way I pronounce it—as Betelgeuse dims dramatically, astronomers scratch their heads. And the subtitle: One of the night's, the night sky's brightest star, is now the faintest it's been in a century and astronomers aren't quite sure what it means. If you read this and the other two links I'm going to give you in a moment, you'll find that the upper left-hand brilliant red star in the right shoulder of Orion, we've talked about Orion many, 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 many times on this show, and its symbolic meanings and its connectedness to ancient Egyptian mythology, the fact that it was the template for the Apollo Patch of the entire Apollo program, etc., etc., etc. Well, that bright upper right shoulder red star, in such striking contrast to all the other bright blue stars that make up this stunning constellation, since October, that bright red star has been dimming dramatically. In the last three months, it is dimmed by more than a magnitude, meaning two and a half times. So it went from being one of the sixth or seventh brightest stars in the sky to the unaided human eye. When you look up there and you see stars, the magnitude system is inverse. Higher magnitudes are dimmer, lower magnitudes are brighter. That goes way back in history, and we don't have the time to get into why the magnitude system was created, but trust me, higher numbers and magnitudes mean it's getting dimmer. It's fallen by two and a half times in only the last couple of months, and it shows no signs of stopping. Now, this is very peculiar because it not only is a brilliant star in the constellation of Orion, but intrinsically, astrophysically, it's an object which is about 650 light years away, it's what's called a red supergiant star, meaning if you could magically place it where the sun is tonight, we would be orbiting, briefly, inside the star because its outer edges, its surface, its photosphere, the, uh, the surface that emits the light, that beautiful glowing reddish light that you can see if you go outside and it's clear and you can see Orion up there in the sky tonight, close to the meridian, um, that light is coming from a surface which if you place Betelgeuse where the sun is, that surface, that radiating surface, would be at the orbit of Jupiter, half a billion miles from the center of the solar system. Now, the sun is only 864,000 miles across, half that 400 and you know, some odd 100,000 miles in radius. Imagine next to Betelgeuse, which stretches to the orbit of Jupiter, the sun would be a speck. It would be almost invisible. It would be bright. If you see it as a star. If you saw Betelgeuse as a disk, the sun would be so tiny by comparison that it would be a brilliant yellow point of light. And it would be much, much dimmer than Betelgeuse. Now, where does all this come from? Well, astronomers believe that stellar brightness is keyed to the mass of the star, meaning the amount of fuel it can burn, and a few other parameters. So the estimated mass of Betelgeuse somewhere around 20 times the mass of the sun, just 20 times. But that results in a radiance, in a brilliance, in a luminosity for Betelgeuse, which is approaching millions of times the luminosity of the sun. And if you have a star even as massive as Betelgeuse, and it's burning fuel at an extraordinary rate compared to the sun you know, nuclear fuel, fusion, that kind of thing. It doesn't take much, uh, you know, of a calculator to realize that there's a finite lifetime for such objects. That's why they're so rare. And the idea of having one almost in the galaxy in our celestial backyard, only, quote, 650 light years away, I mean, that's pretty extraordinary. And the fact that it's part of a really stunning constellation of much brighter and uh, equally massive stars that are not yet on the edge of evolution, to where they will do remarkable things. That also is quite intriguing. So let's get back to Betelgeuse. This story broke just a few days ago that astronomers have been marking for the first time in over a hundred years this dramatic dimming, and they say that it may, you know, turn around in January. Or it may not. And then there's a story, you know, making the rounds out there, that this is presaging the time when Betelgeuse, in the final moments, cosmically speaking, of its life cycle, having used up essentially all its fuel, is going to collapse and then erupt in an extraordinary explosion called a Type II supernova, where a star literally blows itself to kingdom come and lights up the night sky with a luminosity rivaling that of the galaxy itself how bright would betelgeuse if it actually erupted as a supernova be 650 light years away well for that you're going to go back to the other side of midnight you're going to go to the home page you're going to click on that banner for you new folks joining and wondering what's he talking about going to click on tonight's banner for uh, David Collis for December 28. That will take you to the show page. You'll scroll down right under the presidential briefing banner, click on the fast links to Richard's items. That takes you to my items. Click on item number two, which very neatly is a recent article in Astronomy Magazine uh, published uh, this June as to what would happen in terms of effects on Earth if Betelgeuse, remember, 650 light years away, were to go supernova. And the good news is that not much. There wouldn't be any killing radiation. There wouldn't be any, you know, um, fracturing of the Internet through emp effects. There wouldn't be a scouring of the ozone layer and exposing us to raw ultraviolet sunlight, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it would be one heck of a show. Because for a period of almost a year, gauged by past supernova and historical records going back thousands of years, it would be bright enough to be visible in broad daylight as a brilliant point of light. Obviously, much, much brighter, hundreds, millions of times, maybe a a billion times brighter than it is right now. And it would shine that way for almost a year, and it would be optically visible as seen from our own world, looking up into the sky. It would be as bright as a full moon. But all that brightness would be condensed into a single searing point of scintillating light. Because can you imagine the caruscating colors of having an object which is optically below The optical resolution limit of the human eye thereby it would twinkle furiously in multiple colors like sirius does the brightest you know main sequence star in the night sky and it would be just above sirius in the same part of the sky in the right hand shoulder of orion and it would be a brilliant brilliant blue and we may get into what that bluish thing means tonight We're definitely going to get into it tomorrow night when I have John Hogue as my guest, and we're going to be talking about events to come in the next decade of the roaring 2020s. Finally, all of this seems to be presaged by something else, which has been quietly occurring with Betelgeuse for more than the last 20 or so years, because when I was looking up background research on Betelgeuse and trying to find out, you know, if, if there have been any updates to this, this dimming, this really anomalous dimming of a major star in Earth's, you know, heavens in the sky, I ran into a paper published in 2009 by a very famous physicist named Charles Townes. Now, some of you may be thinking, why does that name sound familiar? What is Charles Townes? Charles Towns, he's now no longer with us, unfortunately, uh, was a physicist, a brilliant physicist at uh, Cal Berkeley in California, Northern California. He's the guy who invented the maser and the laser. And using laser technology, he created, atop Mount Wilson, which is in Southern California, a stunning array of telescopes called an interferometric array which allows astronomers finally to measure the optical diameter of a whole raft of stars that in normal telescopes could only be seen as points of light. I mean, stars are really tiny and they're very far away. And so when you look at a star in a telescope, it's a point. If the telescope is really good and well designed, it's just a point of light. The only exception is with Hubble can actually resolve the little tiny disk of huge Betelgeuse 650 light years away and another red supergiant toward the center of the galaxy called Antares, and not much more because stars are tiny and the galaxy, as Uhura once said, is very big. Now, the interferometer that Towns pioneered and helped set up before he passed on on Mount Wilson for 15 years, beginning in the 1990s and extending through when this paper was published in 2009, was able to make nightly measurements of the actual optical diameter of this enormous red supergiant, Betelgeuse, 650 light years away. And remember how I said at the top of the show that it would stretch from the sun to Jupiter in radius? Well, that's not quite true, because you see, what Towns and his colleagues measured by actually physically creating an instrument that could nightly monitor the size of Betelgeuse is that for 15 years, from the 90s to 2009, 2009, Betelgeuse shrank by 15% in 15 years. Now, I have not been able to find any references whether the shrinkage has continued. But I do know that one of the anomalies that that, uh, Towns reported was that even though the star had shrunk by astronomically an extraordinary amount, I mean, 15% for that radius is equivalent to the entire size of the orbit of Venus. And even though it was shrinking, its brightness all those years did not change major anomaly. The only way that could happen would be as the star shrinks and gets smaller, the surface area that it has to radiate is getting smaller, so it should get dimmer, right? To compensate for that, so the brightness stayed in those years just about the same, the temperature of the photosphere had to increase, had to get larger. Through something called the Boltzmann Law, when you heat something up, it To the fourth power is able to radiate energy away much more vigorously at higher temperatures than at lower temperatures. So somehow for those 15 years, the brightness was compensated for by its raising the temperature of the star while it was shrinking physically in size. And then just a couple months ago, that changed and Betelgeuse began to grow dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and it's still growing dimmer tonight now what the mainstream guys were saying is this could all be the foreshadowing of this shattering star splitting explosion that is inevitable in Betelgeuse's future because it can't last forever it won't have infinite fuel and other stars have been observed going supernova in this galaxy and many 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 others over astronomical history so at some point could be tomorrow night, could be in a hundred thousand years, Betelgeuse is going to blow itself to kingdom come and light up Earth's skies as nothing has done in recorded human history. Now, if it happens in the next few days, it will be extraordinary. If it happens in the next year or two, it will be extraordinary. If it doesn't happen, then we still have the mysteries remaining. Why is Betelgeuse shrinking? Is it still shrinking? And why is it growing so dim? The perfect anticipation of a star, which when it finally does whatever it's going to do, will certainly become, depending upon the time of year that it explodes, it will become the Christmas star. Because you see, The explosion will be visible well past at night for that year. It will take a decade or more for it to fall below the supernumerical brightness that the explosion will occasion back to its normal normalcy and then dimmer and dimmer until it disappears from human vision. All of which is a lead up to my guest tonight. We're going to be talking about something so interesting a man who has, through research, through painstaking scholarship, and through putting clues together. I mean, we love clues on the show, right? He has created what he calls, in his masterwork, a book called Interviewing Jesus, the Man. And who has done this? His name is David Collis, who is a native of Southern California, and he has been driven by the romance of quests, exploration, and invention his entire life. David was captivated by art, architecture, craft, religion, and the humanities, and his diverse talents in these fields are as rich as his experiences. David's traveled the world, made pilgrimage to the holy sites, built a stone energy circle and labyrinth, conducted a vision quest, explored alternative healing, learned the hidden language of dreams, investigated the religions of the world, lectured on the Gospel of St. Thomas and created a new series of sacred symbols that he says are the original symbols for a new era. David holds degrees, uh, BFA, Masters and, and Masters of Finance. Interviewing Jesus the Man is his first book. And so without further ado, David Collis, welcome to The Other Side.
1: Hello, Richard, and thank you very much for being for letting me be on your show. Well, I've
0: really been looking forward to this because there's no more interesting a portent celestially than have even the prospect that we could have a bona fide Christmas star in the sky and an appropriate time to have you on. That bio is so brief. I want to start out, since we got a few minutes before the break at the bottom of the hour, I want to start out with the the perennial question, who is David Collis? At what point in your life did you look around and say, hmm, things are not quite the way I thought they were?
1: Uh, Well, let's just say this. At an age of four, I was already having dreams that I was uh, trying to understand because they were so profound, And in my – as a teenager, I was interested in the power of the mind, and I was interested in the concepts that were presented by the chariots of the god and the Bermuda Triangle and things like that. And then um, I – by the time I was in my early 20s, I just became extremely fascinated by the arts and the humanities, and I wanted to understand – Um, the world's religions. I felt it was important for me to understand and at least ask the questions, who is God? Why am I here? Who am I? Those types of things. And it was only through um, this whole quest that I feel like my, my life is, and it's the odyssey that I went on, was I able to answer some of those questions. So it's all been part of like my mate, my matrix, my makeup is, and my DNA is towards um, religion, spirituality, art, sacred uh, spaces, etc.
0: So in terms of your formal education, did I get that right that you basically have a bachelor's and master's in finance?
1: No, it's not finance. It's in the arts.
0: Ah, okay. Fine arts. Okay. Sorry. Yes. Sorry, it's the land of enchantment tonight. So you were brought up looking at the creative side of humanity, architecture, art, philosophy, that that whole realm of, of creativity.
1: Yes, my mind was kind of already geared towards that. Uh, I didn't fully appreciate it because I spent so much time playing sports. But once that was over with and a lot of my energies got focused very specifically into these subjects. When did you first
0: start wondering about the life of Jesus beyond the Gospels and you know, Sunday morning services and Sunday school and, you know, the usual we're all exposed to growing
1: up? Well, you know, we have, um our family had some very strong ties to Christianity um, and that was always very satisfying to me, but then I never really had some, I never really felt connected to Christianity. I always felt that they were, that Christianity was like kind of uh, cold and it kind of reminded me of the stones that I would see in the churches that I would visit. And so I never really, uh, found any inter- inspiration in Christianity, but I found myself, um, going through a very tough time and transition from being a, a young man into an adult. And it was at that transition that I had a couple of experiences that, uh, really shook me up. And one of them were, were, uh my need to understand who god was and so really the first uh religion that i felt uh comfortable with and that i was uh i felt kind of an alignment with was was christianity and i found myself just waking up in a sense to it and just reading everything that i could about it and so i absorbed it like you would a sponge and interesting What I found myself was when I was reading the Old Testament, when I was reading the New Testament, I always had this very strong intuition of knowing what was next, even before I, I had read anything about it. And since then, I feel like I can recall. Wait,
0: wait, wait, wait. Knowing what was next before you read it?
1: Yeah. So I had this sense, I had this kind of prophetic sense of what was already contained within Uh, the New Testament and the Old Testament before I was able to get to reading that part. I just, there was such an intuitive connection to it that um, I was quite surprised by it. And ever since then, uh, believe it or not, when I wrote my book, which was roughly 30 years after I started really investigating or participating in Christianity, I was able to recall Bible verses just on the spot while I was writing. So and there are 165 quotes that I have from the Old Testament and the New Testament, and they were just coming right off like my tongue. Oh, my, my. So this has been a work of yours that's been
0: 30 years in the making.
1: Right. So I was asked how long did it take to write. Well, the answer was an, uh, was one year, but it took 30 years for me to research, and that was all done on my own without any – idea that I was going to end up writing this book but after all of that period and and all the work that I've done and all the readings and the mountains of books and all the travels that I've done I finally got to the point where it was time to write something
0: I'll tell you what, hold it there we're at the bottom of the hour you're on the other side of midnight my guest this morning is independent scholar and generalist David Collis who has written a book called Interviewing Jesus our journey will continue when we return.
1: We three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we traverse so afar, fields and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs nine ninety five a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The Other Side of Midnight.com. To crown him again, King Forever. See-
0: him, God on high. Lord. And welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight on this Saturday night, December 28th, of 2019, just a few days away from the beginning of a new year. My guest this morning is David Collis, who has written a fascinating book called Interviewing Jesus, the Man. Why did you separate the man, David, from? the Godhead, the Son of God, the traditional way that Christianity views Jesus Christ?
1: Well, that was the whole crux of my book. So what I needed to do when I uh, started out to write about Jesus is that it was important to separate theology from the man. And the only way that I was able to do that was to look at his sayings and analyze his sayings as if I were an FBI profiler and come up with a personality profile and his character traits. And once I was able to do that, I was able to see some uh, quite extraordinary insights.
0: Why did you want to – I mean you obviously you know studied in the arts, but writing a book, <clears throat> as someone who's written a few, is very, very hard. People think it's easy. Oh no, no, no! It's why did you decide to write this this compendium, looking at, at Jesus in a whole new light? I mean, these days people do videos, YouTube videos. I hate YouTube videos because you can't you know you can't random access. Writing a book like this takes a lot of not only you know perspiration but inspiration. What was your inspiration?
1: It was primarily when I – I had an experience when I was reading the Gospel of Thomas, and I was reading it uh, somewhere right around the first year or first week of the new year in 2012. And I had the book open, and I had been reading it for quite some time, and there are 114 sayings in the Gospel of Thomas. as I was reading it, that it was if my mind and my eyes were just completely open, and I saw into the heart of this uh, gospel, and I understood what Jesus was saying in this gospel. And at that point, I realized that the person that we understand theologically is not necessarily the same person who was the one speaking these sayings. And I found that there was a disconnect between the theological Jesus and the historical Jesus. Now, there was also another thing that happened to me. Well, there's two. When I was in getting my graduate work, I was working with a man, and he was, uh, you know, as an artist, he was also a philosopher, and he was reading the books on um, the Jesus seminar. And so we were talking about those back in the late 80s. And I kept asking myself, well, how can they po- possibly come up with what the most authentic sayings of Jesus were? So that kind of played a role in in my life and, it, and in this book, but it was always kind of in the background. And the other one was, I started to see Jesus as a human being, and I wanted to understand how he arrived at all of his conclusions. So what we see in the New Testament is Jesus's arrival as the philosopher, as the man, as the one who was conducting his ministry. But what was it like before that? What happened to him for him to have this conviction to be able to do and conduct his ministry, and that really got me thinking. so um I have to uh, admit that the person that I really found inspiration to understand Jesus was Joseph Campbell and the the power of myth and the man with a thousand faces and the hero's journey. And so from there I was try I, I was able to reverse engineer Jesus's life primarily through his sayings. So I ended up compiling 25 pages of his most authentic sayings. And from that, I um, categorized them into subjects and themes and then determined the type of personality that he had and and the types of experiences that he would have needed to have this level of wisdom. Because this is not, this wisdom isn't off the shelf. You just can't read it and then regurgitate it. There was something else that I found in Jesus's writings, and that was that Through his parables and and a number of his aphorisms, Jesus was telling me his own backstory. So there were – his his sayings had an autobiographical sense and quality to them. And that was one of the big revelations that really kind of launched uh, me into this, this material.
0: You know, this probably is going to sound like a dumb question, but there are no such things as dumb questions.
1: So I will muster
0: on and ask it anyway. It's been roughly 2,000 years, 20 centuries since Christ lived. And as far as I can tell, your book is unique in its approach to trying to understand the life and times and context of the real Jesus. How did, how did you wind up at the point of the spear?
1: Well, I read Roman history, Greek history, Egyptian history, Judean history, uh, Mesopotamian history, I read a Greek philosophy, and I studied the religions of Buddhism and Hinduism and Confucianism and Taoism, and and then I started to explore the Western his, uh, esoteric traditions, so then there was the Hermeticism and Gnosticism and the Sufis and the Kabbalah, and I had to really understand the historical context of the first century. So I spent time really trying to understand what that was like. And then um, I then was able to put Jesus's sayings back in context. And once I did that, the picture fell into place. So that 30 years really was required that longer runway
0: before you could come to a kind of a, synthesis and a catharsis about who this guy really was a 3d picture
1: right i had to i had to look at my own experiences and say is there any types of experiences that i have that would match something that jesus would experience in my family um there was several generations of builders And here's Jesus as a carpenter. So I was trying to think about what would have been going on at the time of Jesus in relationship to construction and what kind of economy, uh, large construction projects uh, would generate that level of income. So we're seeing a lot of money in Jesus's sayings. So I had a look at that. And then I also had a look at uh, the types of inspirations that are affecting Jesus. So with that, We have – Jesus has uh, Buddhist influence. He has Hindu influences. He has Taoist influence. He has Confucius influence. He has Egyptian influences. He has Greek influences, particularly Greek philosophy and Pythagorean influences. He has Hebrew influences, and he has Essene influences. So at that point, you have to ask yourself, how can this man understand all these other different disciplines? is there like a universal language out there or did he actually have to go and travel and acquire this wisdom? Hmm. And see, that was, that's the big point that how does all this come together? You would like to see Jesus as like preformed and that he was the second Adam, right? He's the, the, the sacrificial lamb. He's the son of God. So therefore he doesn't have to evolve. Well, I threw that idea out the door and I said, how does this person progress? What were the types of experiences that he had to have had for him to arrive at this ministry? We would like to just say, well, you know, it was preordained and he was ready to go. And so when 30 years old, he just told his his friends and his family, he says, so long I'm on my ministry, can I have a group hug? Well, that's not (laughs) what happened. That's just not what happened. So-
0: Well, hang hang on, hang on. If he truly-
1: If Jesus truly was, was supposed to be
0: the son of man, then almost axiomatically, he had to undergo a human, a human experience of growth and evolution and change. And we're back
1: to Campbell and the hero's journey. That's correct. And that's exactly what I started to realize. And then you have to kind of go through the different terms and what those terms meant. So we might understand – Jesus in one particular way but if you really go back to Jesus when he was actually living and walking and doing the things you know what did it mean to be the son of god who was the son of god right so you have to kind of go back into your egyptian history to find out what that meant you had to go back into egyptian history to understand about the nature of the incarnation of the pharaoh and how that ties in with the incarnation of a god so we're seeing these these pre-existing ideas that the Christians are now adopting and applying to Jesus. That's the best way that I could look at it. You know, like how best to market Jesus in a time – during the Roman occupation But let me just tell you a little bit about Jesus' backstory That you probably have never ever heard of before And this is all contained in his, um, his wisdom saying So they're all in the parables And they're all in the aphorisms And from there I was able to kind of distill the highlights I can't tell you exactly what the order of all this is But I can tell you That Jesus went through and had these types of experiences for him to be able to conduct his ministry the way that he did. Okay,
0: before you launch into this, I have two really important questions. One is, is it true that all of what we know or we think we know about Jesus is presented in the New Testament? Um,
1: That's all we have. So those those are the primary records that we have of Jesus. And this is a very important point because – Well, because that a, record
0: was not contemporaneous. It was written hundreds of years after this man, Jesus Christ, lived, was crucified, died, and resurrected, right?
1: Well, uh, let's just say this. The the proto-Christians had developed a certain idea of about Jesus, and they wrote about it in the gospel. So the first gospel is now going to be written somewhere in the year 70, and that's going to start with the, the gospel of Mark. Then we're going to have Matthew and Luke in there in between the gospel of John and the gospel of John was written somewhere either at the end of the first century or into the second century. So those four gospels are already going to be established. What you're talking about is the canonization of the new Testament. And that didn't take place until uh, the the fourth century at the council of Nicaea and Trent. Mm -hmm. So up until then, there were the gospels that were uh, were already written, and they were already in circulation.
0: So they were kind of like they were kind of like fanzines. They were they were circulated through the population, but not formally um, canonized, that's, not, that's, that's
1: canonized. That's correct. That's correct. Not so, the right term, but that's in well, words, in a sense, that's exactly what you're. You know, how did this stuff circulate? So the Gospel of Thomas was also one of those gospels, but there were other. So. Part of my research was to collect all the anthologies of the spiritual literature from the Second Temple period and, uh, and into the second century. So I have the hidden books of the Bible. I have the Apocrypha. I have the Gnostic Bible. I have the Nag Hammadi Library. I have uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and uh, you know I'm just talking off the top of my head. And I ended up reading you know, these, these anthologies to see what the spiritual ideas were from the, these disciplines, from these groups of people that were holding on to this knowledge. And Christianity is adopting and modifying and shaping and appropriating ideas that we find in all this other material. And then you have others who were, you know, the proto Christians that are fighting against this material or disparaging it in some way. Did you so, or, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, so anyway, what I was gonna say is that there is a lot of other material out there that didn't make it into the canons. But now we do have what some of that material is. I'm not gonna say we have all of it. Um in fact I you know, maybe there is a lot of material and maybe it's stuffed in, you know, some of the uh, ancient libraries, and the Vatican may be in one of them. However, <laughs> okay, that opens up a can of worms. Oh, it and sure does. That, that opens, and that has a lot of, of excitement that you would be involved in and wanting to know. But let me tell you, you know, I didn't have to go very far. I just took the New Testament Gospels, and I took the Gospel of Thomas. I distilled all the, the, the most authentic of his sayings and put it into an anthology of my own and just looked at it and read it and broke it all down. And from that, I found all this information that we should all be amazed and um, excited by. And the mo- the most amazing of his sayings are the sayings when he starts off, the kingdom of heaven is like. And he had tw- – there were 22 sayings. And there were uh, either nine or ten themes based off of the kingdom of heaven. And those right then and there are going to tell you a lot about this type of man and what he was up to and what he was – what kind of spiritual philosophy he was engaged with.
0: Okay, so if we view Jesus as a God undergoing deliberately an evolving, growing human experience, what kind of man was Jesus?
1: Okay, so here are some of the things that I have been able to distill from his sayings. Uh, Jesus was born into a devoted and pious family that had a lot of connections. They were wealthy, and they owned an estate that grew probably agricultural products. So they were, uh, you know, like maybe a plantation. They also seemed to have— So what about you're, uh, you're,
0: you're telling me his family was like the 1%?
1: I wouldn't say that, but I wouldn't say they were at the top of the echelon of of wealth. But they definitely had some kind of estate where they were they were merchants and they had uh, they were growing you know agricultural products. I don't you, I can't determine what type of products. And they also seem to be involved with some kind of building.
0: Hmm. Dates come to mind for some reason. I'm seeing you know palm trees. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: So. You, when you go and you look at Jesus' sayings, the number one subject that he talks about is money. Well, 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 you,
0: well, well what? not salvation, not following the path of righteousness,
1: money? Money. Wow. Now, so when you, and you, let me tell you this when you look and read those 22 sayings that are the kingdom of heavens that are in nine or ten of the nine or ten themes. Salvation theology is not a part of any of that. So um, money seems to be a way that he is expressing spiritual truths that Jesus had direct experience with. So he talks about. When you break down all of his sayings, he's going to talk about different kind of subjects on how money is dealt with. So you have the person who has um, got some type of uh, plantation or estate. You have somebody who is the merchant. You have somebody who is working, and you have somebody who is inheriting money from their parents. When you break down all of those money statements, you're going to start seeing that Jesus is talking about investment, capital return, taxes, good management, poor management, labor disputes, um, uh, and capital gains. Hmm. Wow.
0: This is really kind (laughs) of No wonder I thought your degrees were in finance.
1: (laughs) Oh, there you go. So, I, I, I mean, I hang, on, taught- hang on, hang
0: David, on. David, this is a whole new insight because money makes the world go around. Money is right. kind of like money and life's blood are hand in hand. Without money, you die. You know, money really is life in terms of exchange for things you need to stay alive. You know, mediums of exchange, uh, as you said, capital gain. In other words, the grounding in the ultimate reality of
1: 3D existence is money exchange that's right and the funny thing is is that jesus isn't really upset about that what he seems to be upset about is the manner in which money has turns people into materialists and how all that colors your perception of others particularly in forms of judgment so Mm. This is this is a really kind of a, a remarkable insight. But in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus talks about investment, and he's um, – in one parable, and I'm just going to be speaking it off from the top of my head. Um, uh, he talks about a manager or the owner of the estate who's leaving, and before he leaves, he gives his servants some money. So the first one he gives – I think each one ga- got uh, – he tells them – uh, after he gives them, I think either equal portions. Go out and do something with it, and then let me know what you what happens when you when I return. So you know, several years go by, and he returns and he asks the first one, "What'd you do with the money I gave you?" And the first one says, "Hey, um, I was so scared of you that I decided I was going to bury it, and uh, here's your money back." Hmm. And Jesus says, thank you. And so he looks to the next one, and he says, uh, what'd you do with my money? And the, the man says, well, I invested it, and I got a 10% return on it. And Jesus goes, very good. And he then he looked to the third man, and he says, what'd you do with my money? And he says, well, I took it, and I um, invested it, and I made 100% return on it. And Jesus says, you know, you are the most amazing, and here, let me have all the money that these other two— Uh, made or didn't make and I'm giving it all to you so how do you make what do you make of that this is a remarkable idea of how you invest and so he himself again Jesus is talking from his own experiences and truth there seems to be something that Jesus is equating when you put all your money into something and you invest heavily into the work that you do there's going to be a return that's a huge return Hmm. So that's how he's looking at money. He sees it as a spiritual truism. But we get too caught up into the material aspects of it and what money can buy for us. He was looking at it as how that could be a type of faith. Interesting.
0: So from, from looking at all this textual material, what kind of a personality did Jesus have?
1: Can I go back and like finish his like backstory? Would yeah, you like sure, to sure. some yeah, of that? Okay, so because that the his personality traits are just as remarkable as this. Okay, so it appears as though his family was wealthy. We also read that in Luke. I can't remember the exact state. Uh, uh, oh, uh, I think his it's Luke eight um, chapter eight, verse two and three. That his mother Mary was a woman of means. So there's also the other indication that Jesus came from a fairly wealthy family. So Jesus and his family also had a strong sense of destiny. They felt that Jesus, uh, his parents felt that Jesus was going to do something remarkable, and Jesus also had the same conviction. Jesus seems to have left home somewhere between the age of 14 and 17. Um, Jesus then studied and he learned and he practiced spiritual knowledge And based off of all of the sayings that Jesus has, there's a likelihood that he was in uh, the East, most likely India, to get that. Uh, And then I've been able to identify four very profound experiences that Jesus had prior to his ministry. I can't tell you the exact order that these happened in, but I can tell you these happened to him. And I have... uh, I'm not going to say I have 100% assurity that this is accurate, but I can tell you that I'm convinced uh, at least 95% of this is true. Jesus had some kind of enlightenment experience. Uh, This is going to surprise you. Jesus was robbed and beaten, which is why he uses robbed and beaten in about seven to nine of his uh, spiritual sayings. Uh, Jesus had a very strong sexual experience that he felt very shamed by. Uh, That was very remarkable to recognize that. He also experienced what we would refer to as like kind of the dark night of the soul, the pit of humanity, and he realized that uh, everything was just absolutely horrible, and people were horrible, and he sank into what we refer to as the proverbial hell. So he was, uh, he saw the the wickedness and the ugliness of mankind, and he got stuck in that that negative circle, and spiraled down. And then when Jesus returned home, some of his family members uh, were re- very reluctant to receive him now, back.
0: Wait, 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 wait! All of this you have gleaned from the New Testament, from the Gospels.
1: Yes. Fascinating.
0: Really fascinating.
1: Go Again. Ahead. Uh, again, I'm just going to emphasize the fact that Jesus is always speaking from um, a position of knowing. So he's not reading a book and then regurgitating from the book or from a scroll or from some other wisdom sayings. He's not doing that. He is telling you something that has been very, that's very profound in his life, and he's telling you something that he himself has experienced. And that's the most important thing to take away, is that Jesus's sayings are autobiographical. He is also able, and this is part of his genius, is he was able to take existing um, and current affairs and then turn those current affairs into uh, spiritual wisdom sayings. It's a remarkable thing that he was able to do. So you and I are now having a discussion about the type of Jesus was. Jesus was the type of man who was a poet who crafted his sayings and then delivered those sayings to people.
0: I have, I guess, a kind of a dumb question, but maybe it isn't. If you're the son of God and you incarnate to have a human experience – I mean, how could he go through the depths of hell and have the perspectives on humans and, and you know, be, be, a, be a victim and, you know, and all that if he simultaneously knew who he was?
1: So now we kind of touch upon something a little bit more uh, interesting. So who was at the time of Jesus considered the son of God? And we're going to start seeing that the Caesars were taking on that role and that mantle. And of course, that comes from the Egyptians. Right. One, of the, one of the things that, um, you know, this is a very kind of a thorny question. So it's a theological question. So right now we're imagining that everything is driven from a theological point of view. And what I wanted to do was um, push that aside so I can understand the human side of you, so that I can look at his progression and his um, development. So if we go back and say that he's the son of God, then we get into this condu- uh, uh, kind of a thorny, uh, I don't know, tricky kind of well, wouldn't he dialogue. To, and,
0: and we're, we're coming up to the break of the top of the hour, so let's hold this, because to me this is the crux of the book, the crux of Jesus himself, the crux of the whole Christmas and Easter experience, Um, let's just hold it there and, and tease people for a couple of minutes here, okay? My guest this morning is David Collis. We're talking about interrogating and interviewing the man, Jesus the man, not Jesus the Son of God, and the crossover is going to be really interesting when we come back. You're on the other side of midnight. This is our Christmas special, our post Christmas, our 12 days of Christmas special. And we're going to take you out here with the Carol of the Bells, which, historically speaking, was written just, you know, apropos of what's going on in the news right now, many decades ago by a Ukrainian. We shall return. Over and out.